Did you know there was a time in America when the pastor's salary was paid for by the taxes of the citizens of that city and the only people who could vote in that city or state elections were those people who were full members of the church? Well, we're going to look into that and its connection to the development of the Unitarian Universalist Church on Wisdom 828, where we're dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. Hi, I'm Bob Buchanan. Now recently my wife stumbled onto um, an, uh, a quote by a fellow by the name of John Pavlovitz. And it was a quote that had related Christianity and Jesus all kind of mixed up in this quote. And she asked me if I was familiar with this, this person and I, and I wasn't. So I decided to do a bit of research. Pavlovich is a, is a prominent Wake Forest, uh, North Carolina Unitarian Universalist pastor in what is today called the Progressive Christian Movement. Uh, one news outlet said of him that he is one of the nation's most beloved and vigilant voices of the progressive Christian movement. He's an iconoclast for sure, and uh, he likes to, as it said, th shake things up a little bit. But what intrigued me was his church affiliation. John Pavlovich is a pastor of a Unitarian Universalist or UU denomination as it's known. And since I enjoy reading about church history and various movements that claim Christian roots, I thought it'd be good to look into the origins of the UU because I didn't know very much about it at all. And uh, uh, nor its statement of faith. So now, uh, so you know, we, we make our home in, in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts is the home of historic firsts when it comes to the Christian movement at all. Massachusetts is the home of the Wampanoag Indian uh, native tribes that still reside here. Uh, they were the tribe that met the first English Puritans when they formed their colony at Plymouth. Uh, a replica of that colony is a tourist attraction. Uh, Massachusetts is home to the first congregational churches in America. Uh, one of them is in Salem, Massachusetts, the home of the infamous witch trials. Uh, many famous church pastors like the Mathers and Jonathan Edwards once lived and they ministered here. And of course, the Mathers were instrumental in the founding of Harvard University. Now we also have Bunker Hill and the Boston Massacre, and uh, uh, I, I'd, I'd be uh, remiss, and I'd have to forfeit my residency if I didn't mention the New England Patriots, now without Tom Brady, uh, but a pretty good-looking rookie, uh, the Boston Celtics, uh, uh, the Red Sox, and the Bees, also known as the Boston Bruins. So what surprised me in this study of the UU is that it has its roots in New England Puritanism, uh, Puritanism and their development of the congregational churches of the 1600s here in Massachusetts. And when the pilgrims landed at Plymouth in 1620, they, they thought that they would at last fulfill their life uh, long desires to be free from the dictates of the uh, national church, the Church of England. And those 120 or so people needed to also form a civil government uh, which uh, would they could use to govern themselves. And the document that they created was called the Mayflower, Mayflower uh, Compact. And it's considered by some historians, at least, to be uh, the seminal introduction that gave impetus to uh, the demands for freedom from Great Britain. In the congregational churches at the time, members elected, <coughs> excuse me, elected their own church leaders, their pastors, elders, and deacons. And this practice became the same format in choosing civil government leaders. The hallmark of congregational government, whether for the church or the city at the time, is that the governed elect uh, were elected by those who they were then governing. Uh, 
At the time, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony of the early uh, to mid-18th century, uh, there was no such thing as separation of church and state, and so citizens were taxed to support the community and the church officials. But only church members, almost exclusively all men, were allowed to vote for church or city leaders. And if you tour a replica of the Plymouth Plantation today, actors are there and they'll play members of the community. And if you engage in a conversation with them, uh, they'll stay right in character and they'll complain about the leaders and the taxes and how unfair it is that they have to be members of the church in order to vote for the city uh, uh, offices. It's quite enlightening, nothing's new. In order to ensure a good supply though, of well-trained ministers for the expanding congregational churches throughout New England, Harvard University was founded in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1636. And the inscription over the main gate known as Johnston Gate tells the story of Harvard's first mission. It says this, after God had carried us safe to New England and we had built our houses, provided necessities for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government, one of the next things that we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading the leave of an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. But the story of the UU's development is a cautionary tale. It's a story of theological drift, like all theological drifts in church history. The drift of the congregational church from her evangelical moorings came slowly, almost imperceptibly. The Puritans of New England were steeped in Calvinistic theology. Harvard began there, but drifted towards Unitarianism. The drift gave uh, rise to the establishment of Yale University for the training of theologically faithful ministers for the congregational churches. Timothy Dwight, the grandson of one of New England's greatest preachers, Jonathan Edwards, became the president of Yale from 1795 to 1817. He had an effective ministry and even uh, presided over a, a revival among the students there. But he also made some modifications to the accepted Calvinist doctrines as a response to the winds of change that uh, came in the wake of three massive influences, the Revolutionary War, the French Enlightenment, and the Scottish Common Sense Movement, which was meant to make corrections to David Hume's skepticism. Hume, by the way, was a Scottish philosopher. Now, following Dwight was Nathaniel William Taylor, the first professor of the new Yale Divinity School, where he saw himself as the heir of Jonathan Edwards and championed the Unitarian innovations of Harvard. He championed some accommodating theological positions that further eroded orthodox evangelical standards uh, that the, were held by the New England Puritans and even Edwards himself. Two notable changes came about at that time. The first was a denial of the Trinity hence the name Unitarian. The second change uh, that was introduced had to do with the Bible and its understanding of human nature. Taylor argued that all people had what he called the power to the contrary uh, when they were faced with moral cho choices. In other words, all people actually do sin, but they are not bound by that sin because of their fallen human nature. Rather, uh, he taught that it was possible to choose to act righteously by exerting your own will and all of the energies of that will to its fullest. In fact, 
they can, uh, people can will themselves to trust in God the same way. Students of Christian history will recognize this as a revival of, of Arminian uh, theology uh, in the 16th century. The foundation of this theology said that all people have the capacity to create a moral and virtuous and free society according to the dictates of God. Puritans held that all people are born in sin as a condition of their human nature. It wasn't that humans did sinful things, they were sinful people who needed a savior. And what this theology abandoned was the biblical revelation that all people inherit the sinful nature due to Adam's fall. When we try to understand theological drift, we have to take a step back and, and look at what's happened before with the new innovations take place. The first drift, usually unseen, is the necessary one that opens the door to a new theology. And that first step is the abandonment of the authority of God's word. As far as I can tell, standing behind every drift into heresy is the denial of the doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture. When people determine that God's word isn't inspired, truthful and without error, and that human uh, wisdom is greater than the wisdom of God, they're falling into the first lie ever told, and that was to Adam and Eve by the serpent in the garden who asked them, did God really say that? The door is now open for choosing a whole different path of life, a different gospel, and a different reality. The full flowering of Unitarianism came with William Channing, born in Rhode Island in 1780. Now Channing grew up under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards' most faithful student, Samuel Hopkins. In other words, he grew up in the stricter forms of New England Calvinism. In 1803, he became the lifelong minister of Boston's Federal Street Congregational Church. His association with Harvard College, uh, by then fully committed to Unitarian theology, made Boston a Unitarian stronghold. Channing took the new Unitarian movement to new levels, denying several key doctrines which Christianity, uh, on which Christianity stands. The deity of Christ, uh, claiming he claimed that Jesus was, was a good moral teacher but not God, uh, the fall of humanity, and the substitutionary atonement. He affirmed the perfectibility of humanity, the fatherhood of God over all people, the moral perfection of Christ, and the reality of the resurrection. He believed that the Bible recorded inspiration, but was not itself inspired. In other words, Channing gave up the gospel. And there were evangelical uh, uh, stalwarts who stood against the rising tide of Unitarianism. They were at Princeton, founded in 1812. Archibald Alexander and Charles Hodge, they led the way for more than five decades. Now the other U is the Universalists, and they trace their heritage to the early church fathers like Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, uh, though it's doubtful that those men taught Universalist doctrine. The core belief of the Universalist church is that Christ will save every single human soul, leading to the restitution of all things, regardless of one's relationship with Jesus. The Universalist church emerged in the late 18th century among uh, some of the congregational churches in New England and especially in the churches of Massachusetts. But a schism between those who held the Trinitarian belief and those who held a Unitarian belief about God split into two separate denominations in 1825. It took some time, but these two groups, the Unitarians and the Universalists, 
integrated by uh, 1961, forming the Universalist, uh, Unitarian Universalist Association. And they got their status in May of that year under a special act of the, you guessed it, legislature of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Now, what does the UU actually believe? Now, this is from their website, and I'm quoting here. Unitarian Universalist congregations affirm and promote seven principles which we hold as strong values and moral guides. We live out these principles within a living tradition of wisdom and spirituality drawn from sources as diverse as science and poetry, scripture, and personal experience. And as Reverend Barbara Wells Ten Hove explains, the principles are not dogma or doctrine, but rather a guide for those, those of us who choose to join and participate in the universal, uh, Unitarian Universalist religious communities. Now here are those seven principles. One, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Two, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Three, acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. Four, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Five, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. Six, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. And seven, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Now, I wanna say that there are things that Christians can affirm in those statements and also deny. Now, Christians can affirm in general these principles of the UU. These principles are borrowed from the word of God and more importantly, from the God of the word. God's word teaches us that all people are made in the image of God and on that basis have dignity and deserve respect. The God of the Bible is just, impartial, and compassionate in all of his dealings with all humans. Christians are obligated by God's word to encourage spiritual biblical growth. Now, we call that the Great Commission, discipling all the nations. Conscience plays a very big role in the Christian life, but it's not the only voice for guidance in right and wrong. The Christian believes that the human conscience can be free, can be weak, it can be seared, but it's not ultimate, it's not the ultimate guide. God's word is the ultimate guide. We believe the goal of world history will culminate in peace, liberty, and justice when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. Until that time, it is proper for Christians to work for the uh, peace of a society where there is conflict, to work for liberty where there's oppression and justice. Finally, Christians understand that we are a part of the human community, interdependent and most of all, God-dependent. We have a mandate to work for the flourishing of the family, the church, and the community. In these ways, we affirm, in general, the UU principles. But there are significant denials that Christians must make that separate us from the UU. Christians believe that God is a Trinitarian being, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity is fully God, eternally holy, and worthy of our praise and worship. We believe that humanity is comprehensively sinful because all have inherited Adam's sin and guilt. There is no aspect of humanity, no faculty of the human being that has not been corrupted by sin and guilt. 
It is not just the acts of sin for which we must be forgiven, but we must be set free from our own sin nature. Left to ourselves in this sinful condition, no human being is willing or able to turn to Christ as Savior unless the Spirit of God regenerates or makes new the fallen human heart, no one would be saved. Christians believe that the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ gives us what we don't possess on our own, but we need in order to be accepted by God, and that is the righteousness of Christ. And when it comes to the nature of Jesus, Christians believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Indeed, he was and is a good teacher, a great teacher, but he was so much more than that. As C.S. Lewis said, and I'm paraphrasing here, anyone who would say the things that Jesus said or did the things that Jesus did would have to be considered a, a lunatic on the order of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he is the Lord of glory. And the most important denial that we have to make with the UU is that Christians affirm Jesus is the Lamb of God, God's chosen sacrificial substitute who took upon himself our punishment for sin satisfied the wrath of God completely against us and gave us the gift of his righteousness and adopted us into God's forever family. Therefore, Christians deny that Jesus will save anyone based on their moral rectitude or deny salvation to anyone based on their moral depravity. The requirement for salvation for any is that they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. The hard part about this for our secular and you, you friends, is the exclusivity that Jesus claims for himself. There is no other name under heaven whereby men, women, or children might be saved. Now, if that's you, rejoice in your salvation today, every day. If that's not you, consider what's at stake, nothing less than your eternal destiny. While you still have today, trust the gospel that says to you that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe but you are more accepted in love than you ever dared to hope. Call on the name of Jesus today. Well, I thought it was important that you would know these things. So thanks for joining me and Steve Dion behind the camera as we stamp out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. You be of good cheer.